Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning, Annie. Good morning, everybody. Isn't it a beautiful day outside? Sun is shining very brightly. Yes, and as you said, you were almost knocked over by all the people who had realised that they had to get healthy for summer. Indeed. Everybody's out there getting fit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a worry. <laughs> uh, on uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning, we thought we, we'd re- revisit the silicosis issue. Uh, is it the new asbestos? And uh, you might know that the CFMEU launched a national campaign around safety levels uh, of silicon dust earlier this year after the true horror of the effects of the dust is um what what's happening to young tradies uh and uh it's a death knell really if you don't actually deal with it so um we're going to go back and uh remind you about what what they're talking about uh from that particular event uh, the doctor who um Ryan Hoy gave a uh, very compelling speech around the issue and later on we're going to catch up with uh Dr Jerry Ayres from the CFMEU to find out what progress the national campaign's having but before we do that let's hear from some important announcements for 10 days in November Defend and Extend's public housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately $6 billion plus per year for public housing. House 1 million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments. And most importantly of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. You were just saying, uh, Fiona, that uh, the state election, which is on the 24th of November, it's all heating up, isn't it? Yeah, there are. People, uh, uh, different groups are, are, put, are putting forward their campaigns and their requests, whether it's um, education, the environment, public housing. Um, it's an important time. Um, so 
uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, um, the rather sobering events in um, uh, Burke Street yesterday uh, with um, uh, the the fellow driving his car into the uh, intersection near the Target building, which is uh, Burke Street and uh, Swanston, which is a major uh, artery uh, for pedestrians. uh, it's uh, fairly compelling that the person who did this and then put his uh, car on fire and stabbed people and was gen- then shot was a Somali person. And uh, you might remember that today at 2pm uh, at, at the uh, State Library, there's a stand together against racism. So it's probably become more compelling that uh, people get out and uh, join together to... Uh, discuss these issues properly and uh, uh, band together against racism Uh, and uh, because racism has been put forward as an election issue, especially by the Liberals, it would Mm. be um, fair to say uh, they like to uh, beat a drum uh, and uh, we'll find that those uh, events that happened yesterday probably... They, there'll be certain people who will be seeing this as being an opportunity. You know, as in all adversity in business, uh, where, where there's losers, there's winners. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get back to our issue, which is silicosis. And we'll just uh, hear from Dr. Ryan Hoy. He uh, gave, a, as I said, a compelling speech that should shiv- send shivers down your spine. So thanks um, very much for the opportunity to come and talk today. Um, So um, black lung disease was a disease uh, that was thought to be eradicated in Australia and silicosis is similar. Um, Unfortunately, we've seen a significant re-emergence of black lung disease in Queensland and we've also unfortunately seen a massive um, re-emergence of silicosis over the last two years, in particular in young tradies in the manufacturing and the construction sector. So I'm going to go through a few things today, but I first of all wanted to begin by telling you about a patient that I recently assessed. So a 34-year-old stonemason, so he's married, um, has three young children, all less than 10 years of age. His work has primarily involved production of kitchen and bathroom bench tops. So as part of his work, he cuts these slabs of stone to size and then he usually uses hand tools to cut out the inserts. So cut out the inserts for the sinks and for the tapware. He's been working in this industry for about a decade and really since the mid-2000s, 95% of his work is with artificial stone, in particular Caesar stones, the most common stone that he uses. (coughs) During his apprenticeship, and he did undertake an apprenticeship as a stonemason. He was never educated about risk related to silica dust exposure. And during his work, he was never screened for a possible occupational lung disease. So in 2014, he first saw his GP. He had a persistent dry cough. It just wasn't going away. His GP tried him on a couple of inhalers, thought maybe it was asthma, uh, but his symptoms didn't improve. In fact, he got worse. So over the, line, the next year... The cough worsened and he became more short of breath and particularly noticed this when he was playing with his kids. So his GP then referred him to a respiratory specialist for further testing. He had a CT scan of his lungs and he had some other testing done and he was diagnosed with silicosis. 
Because of this disease, he was told he shouldn't return to his workplace anymore because further silica exposure was likely to worsen his condition. So he took that advice and didn't return to work. But his condition deteriorated. So over the following two and a half years, he's now developed what's known as progressive massive fibrosis over a very rapid period of time. He's now short of breath when he walks 100 metres and he can't play with his kids anymore. His lung function has deteriorated to 50% what it should be. And there's no treatment for this preventable occupational lung disease. His only hope now is lung transplantation. So there are many diseases that are associated with silica exposure. And what we're most concerned about at the moment are these forms of silicosis known as acute silicosis and accelerated silicosis. And these are diseases that are actually quite different to chronic silicosis. Acute and accelerated silicosis are associated with high intensity exposure to silica dust. There have been many outbreaks of silicosis and acute silicosis over time. So this is from 1900 in Utah. This is the Delamar Quartz Mill. And there were 100 deaths here over a five year period. Then in the 1930s in the US, there was 480 workers that died over a five year period. Now this is the Hawker's Nest uh, Tunnel. And this is uh, acknowledged as one of the worst industrial disasters in US history. Uh, more recently, there have been clusters of acute silicosis associated with other exposures. Uh, one of the most well-described relates to sandblasting of genes. This was a practice that was quite common in Turkey to provide the aged look on uh, denim genes. There's also been outbreaks in dental laboratory technicians in the United States in the sandblasting of oil field pipelines and more recently in hydraulic fracking for gas and oil extraction. But what we're most concerned about at the moment is the use of artificial stone. And so this comes by various other names, so um, engineered stone, uh, reconstituted stone, quartz conglomerate. There's a lot of different names that's used for this product. And there are a variety of companies that do produce this stone. Um, Caesar stone would be the most commonly known form of it. It's been available only in Australia since 2001, so it's a relatively new building material in our country. But since that time, it's become an extremely popular building material. So essentially, artificial stones made from finely crushed silicon-containing rocks. And these rocks are crushed to almost a powder-like consistency. And then they're bound together with a resin and then they're formed into slabs by this process of pressure and heat curing. And so the major issue with this product is that it contains an extremely high level of silica. So the natural stones which have been commonly used to form bench tops include marble and granite. And marble only actually has 2% silica in it, and granite typically about 30% silica. Whereas artificial stone has greater than 85% crystalline silica, which is actually comparable to the amount of silica that's in sandstone. So workers then will cut the slabs of stone, they'll cut them down to size and then they'll cut out the inserts, as I mentioned before, for tapware, for sinks, etc. And they'll often do this with uh, hand tools. Um, unfortunately, despite the known high level of silica in the product, there's been very little research that's been done into occupational exposure to silica in this industry. So the Safe Work New South Wales uh, Hygiene and Toxicology team, pleasingly, have actually been 
quite proactive about this issue over the last uh, year. And they undertook a study, and the results of this they presented at the ICO conference in Dublin earlier this year. And what they did was that they went out to uh, six different workplaces and they monitored exposure to silica dust amongst 35 workers. So they had personal monitoring over that eight-hour work period. And the results were really quite alarming. So they found with the polishing of stone that the average level of exposed to silica dust was 0.2 milligrams over an eight-hour period, which is currently double the, uh, the exposure standard. That's the average level of exposure. And some workers were exposed to levels of two, which is 20 times higher than the current exposure standard. Wet cutting, which has been by some people thought to be a safe work practice with cutting the stone, was also associated with a level that is in exceedance of the current exposure standard, and also with some levels of extremely high proportions amongst workers. And of note, there were actually some people that were not actually on the plant floor. They were actually likely in the office environment next to the workshop, where they were also exposed to levels above the current standard. And that study didn't actually look at what's thought to be the most dangerous, the most hazardous form of dealing with the stone, which is dry cutting. And from the workers that I've seen, dry cutting has been a very, very common practice with the stone. This one study uh, investigated and they looked at um, the amount of exposure to silica dust over a 30 minute period. And the current um, recommended standard is to not exceed 0.3 milligrams per cubic metre over a 30 minute period and they recorded levels of 44, so 150 times higher than the current uh, recommended standard. The first report of silicosis from this product was in Italy in 2011. So relatively recent identification of this condition, and since that time, there have been many more reports, many more clusters that have been um, described in the medical literature. Uh, many from Europe and now many from, uh, North, the, uh, um, uh, from America as well. Uh, Caesarstone is a company that's based in Israel and they've been producing this stone since the late 1980s um, and have been using it for obviously much longer than we have in Australia. And currently they report 40 new cases of silicosis per year due to artificial stone work and 4% of all their lung transplants are performed because of this disease. So what have we seen in Australia recently? So in early and mid-2017, uh, through discussion with colleagues in the Thoracic Society of Australia and New Zealand, we tried to collate um, our information about the workers we'd seen in our day-to-day -day practices as respiratory physicians. And these are doctors from uh, New South Wales and Queensland as well as here in Victoria. So we rapidly identified uh, seven workers and what was most troubling was the range of age of these workers, with some being in their mid-twenties. They'd worked with stone for a relatively short period of time, uh, for between four years and ten years, prior to the onset of their symptoms. There was no health surveillance performed at any of their workplace. None had screening chest x-rays performed, even though that's actually part of the regulations related to silica uh, exposure. There were relatively small workplaces between two and 20 workers at each workplace, and many came from overseas initially. 
What we found when we looked at uh, data related to their lung function was that they had a rapid decline in their lung function. So after diagnosis, they had 30, on average, a 30 times greater than expected rate of decline of their lung function in comparison to a healthy adult. And we found that looking at their CT imaging as well, they also had a rapid progression from mild simple silicosis through to this terrible form of disease known as progressive massive fibrosis. And even after leaving their workplaces, they had ongoing deterioration in their lung function and their condition. But these workers that we described uh, mid last year are really just the tip of the iceberg. These are workers that became apparent to, to us as respiratory physicians, and there's quite a few steps to actually get to see a respiratory physician. They're all workers that presented with symptoms. They presented with cough, shortness of breath. They weren't picked up at, a, at an early stage. So health surveillance has not been performed in this industry, and it really must be performed to identify workers in early stage before they actually develop severe lung disease. Just this week, speaking to a colleague in Queensland, an occupational physician in Queensland, because of some increase in awareness of this issue, he has been engaged by two employers that run businesses, and these employers are extremely concerned about this issue. And he engaged the occupational physician to screen their workers and out of 35 workers that he screened, he identified 12 with silicosis. So a third of the workforce. There's very limited information at the moment about the effectiveness of dust control measures using artificial stone. The studies really haven't been done to show what practice is actually safe. We really need objective demonstration of workplace silica dust levels. Going into a workplace and doing a visual inspection of a workplace is not sufficient to determine whether the level of dust in that environment is actually safe. And the hazardous chemicals regulations related to silica must be enforced. There, these regulations are in place, and certainly in my opinion and uh, my experience here in Victoria, these regulations in this industry are not enforced whatsoever. So a lot of, um, there has been an increase in media attention about this issue over the last uh, few months and this is primarily because of a, a very brave uh, stonemason from the Gold Coast, um, Anthony White, who has been brave enough to tell his story about his silicosis and the severity of his disease and what he's experienced over the last few months. And it's only really through um, Anthony stepping up and talking about what he's actually experienced that there has been an increase in awareness of this problem in Queensland and in New South Wales, but we really need to do a lot more here in Victoria as well. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. And yes, you are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and that's an extremely disturbing uh, speech, I'll have to say, for the uh, young tradies and for the wider community. And we've got uh, Dr. Ed Jerry Ayres from the CFMEU who looks out for OH&S on the line. How are you? Thanks for getting up and talking to us. My pleasure, Annie, my pleasure. Now, um, as I said, that was a couple of months ago uh, that speech was given. Uh, what's happening with the national campaign that the CFMEU are progressing with? Yeah, look, we're, we're, we're pretty... Um to get this campaign, you know, 
fully um, implemented for want of a better term. Um, it's unfortunate, I suppose, in Victoria now we've gone into that sort of caretaker um, election mode that WorkSafe have probably uh, almost stalled on this um, at the moment. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're pleased that uh, the Federal Minister, Greg Hunt, um, did say that they would review through WorkSafe Australia the, ex- the actual exposure limit uh, for silicosis or for silica dust. Um, currently, that, that um, 0.1 milligram per cubic metre over an eight-hour day. Now, all the research, as Dr Ryan Hoy points out, has shown, and Victorian Trades Hall have taken a great role in this as well. Dr Paul Sutton has done a terrific job. Um, Trades Hall have, have launched a new standard, which we believe, um, taking all the international research, should be as a minimum um, 0.025 milligrams per cubic metre over an eight-hour day. So that's a quarter of the current standard, which is allowable in Australia. So we're pushing that very, very hard. Um, but as Dr Ryan Hoy mentioned, a lot of the cases where these workers have been um, acutely exposed to the silica dust are generally small workplaces, um, unorganised, non-unionised. Those workers don't have much representation, so it's a, a real battle to try to get those workplaces to comply to the current legal limit, let alone um, you know, putting it into the, the new limit, which is um, um, a quarter of that. Um, but having said that, I think Ryan's correct in that the regulator has a real major role in all of this to play, and they really need to step up and start to enforce the regulations as they currently are. Yeah, as you point out, the uh, uh, OHS Act makes it uh, uh, employers have an obligation to mm. actually create a safe workplace. It's quite quite um, clear and yep. unambiguous. But as uh, uh, so, there's plenty of um, tools legislatively to enforce this to happen. Now, as Dr. Ryan Hoy points out, uh, uh, if you don't measure something, uh, then uh, it doesn't exist. Except we have these cases that clearly show that it does. Yeah. Look, um, you know, the, the, the air the air monitoring is a mandatory requirement. If there is any doubt that the level of uh, exposure to silica uh, is over that 0.1 uh, um, reference point. So if, without the air monitoring, there's no way to know whether anyone has been exposed to more or less. Um, air monitoring also informs us um, whether there's a risk of a, acute accelerated or chronic silicosis um, all of which have a very different prognosis and treatment. Now, WorkSafe gave us some data that um, since 2005, they had issued 242 improvement notices on workplaces which um, use crystalline silica. Um, none of those workplaces had monitoring. WorkSafe needs to go out and enforce what the regulations require. So that is both air monitoring when people um, are creating silica dust uh, and also 
personal health monitoring for those workers to determine whether they are being uh, exposed to uh, acute levels and showing the you know the, the early symptoms of silicosis. And it's unfortunate that WorkSafe won't do this because that is one way to send a message to all of industry that we are serious about this deadly substance. Yeah, the, it, it highlights this dissonance between um, uh, regulation and actual experience on the ground. And I know that there's a certain sort of... Uh, uh, annoyance and uh, upset that uh, WorkSafe appears to be quite uh, um, isn't functioning as people expect them to function uh, from a, work, a worker's point of view. Have you had reactions from uh, your members because they're at the coalface, literally at the silica face, um, about how they they feel that they need to create a system to uh, alter uh, what's going on. You know, an information campaign is that is anything like that? Because people, if people, it's affecting them, and uh, governments and legislation, it's all there in place in actual fact, but uh, there's no will to actually protect these workers. All of that comes across our, you know, uh, desk every day of. The week, um, you know, we have a, a monthly OHNS reps meeting. Um, we get, a, you know, on average around about 150 reps coming in. We actually launched the new trade hall standard at that meeting where Dr. Ryan Hoy spoke. And that was back in August. Um, but at each of these meetings, there are, um, I'd say, valid complaints uh, and quite legitimate complaints about the lack of enforcement that the regulator is currently implementing, not just on silica, but on a range of things, especially in, you know, a, quite a dangerous industry such as construction. Um, there is, um, there appears to be what I call almost regulatory paralysis on some areas of the regulator. They They tend not to want to... Uh, enforce and get the employers to comply to what is the regulation and what is mandatory. And the perfect example is this silica dust, where we know employers who have a work system which is creating silica dust. Um, I'm at a loss to understand why WorkSafe haven't gone out to a number of these workplaces and halted those work processes simply because the employee can't prove that they are below the silica dust standard and that they are not uh, doing the air monitoring both for the environment and they are not doing the uh, health monitoring for their employees. It's it's a walk-up start for any regulator to go in there and just say, you can't prove what you're doing is safe, you can't show me that you're doing any health monitoring for your employees Therefore, you are in breach of the regulation. Therefore, this must stop. I mean, assume, assuming, assuming that uh, employers... I mean, in, in that talk that uh, Dr Hoy gave, there were two employer, employers in Queensland who took this terribly seriously because, I mean, the idea that people mm. want to be the cause of the death of their workforce yeah. uh, is a pretty, you know, grim yeah, step... Yeah. So uh, it doesn't have to be confrontational. It'll actually Not be like rehabilitation of workplaces to the extent that even the people working in the 
uh, officers won't get sick? Oh, absolutely. Look, you know, um, we, we've got um, data from WorkSafe where they had received um, 66 silicosis claims from 2001 to 2018, um, but they've already received 13 claims this year. Um, now, that that was from back in August this this year. So um, WorkSafe already have the data. They know where these workplaces are. It's just simply a matter of going out there and, like you said, walking in there and saying, look, this is a really dangerous substance. This is what you have to do. We can help you achieve that. We can help you achieve compliance. Um, let's sit down and talk and let's work our way through that. Um, we'd be more than happy if WorkSafe did that, but there seems to be uh, a reluctance for that to occur, which is a shame. Now, on our construction sites, we're not kind of exposed to it in the intensity as these sort of kitchen bench top work, workshops. However, all our reps now have the information uh, and they know what they have to do and they're putting in place different measures to keep, you know, the general dust of silica coming from, say, concrete and those sorts of things down to its minimal level. Um, I, I didn't hear all of Ryan's speech, but obviously there's around about 20 25% of silica in concrete but these new artificial kitchen stone bench tops, um, they've got around 95 to 98%. So yeah, it's frightening difference. stuff, isn't it? It's really oh, frightening it it's stuff. It's really scary, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for getting up this morning and having a yarn with us. My pleasure, Annie. CR and that I thought was a very appropriate number that was uh, called In Drawn Breath by Dust. <laughs> Couldn't have got a better better uh, number after a, a piece about silica um, and silicosis, I'd have to say. And uh, you're here on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Fiona. And in the studio, we've got Marcus Harrington. How are you? Yeah, thanks, Annie. It's good to be back. Yeah, yeah, it is. We miss you. This is your old slot. It is, yeah. Occupied this slot for a long time. Also, the late Bill Dallow, it was his anniversary recently. Yes, Occupied exactly. this chair for many years in this studio. Yeah, on that's this exactly time right. Slot. Exactly. Um, but we've got you in here because uh, of the spirit of Eureka Memorial Dinner. It's coming up. Maybe you can remind listeners, or maybe they don't need to be reminded, but about the importance of the Eureka event. Uh, it is an important event to remember. Um, 164 years ago, Tomorrow actually is the anniversary of the formation of the Ballarat Reform League when uh, 10,000 aggrieved diggers uh, held a meeting at Bakery Hill. Uh, it was an uprising against a tyrannical administration, a largely unelected government. So tomorrow, 164 years ago, like I said before, the uh, <laughs> formation of the Ballarat Reform League when the diggers held a, uh, a meeting at Bakery Hill, 10,000 diggers turned up and they put together a log of claims to serve on the government. They wanted 
representation in Parliament, the right to vote, and parliamentary elections at regular intervals. So at that time, only the rich, the rich landowners had the right to vote and the right to stand in Parliament. So the, the workers, the diggers, were paying tax. They didn't have a vote, didn't have a say. The rich weren't paying tax. They were setting the agenda. So what's changed 164 years yeah, later? It's, it sounds like the same situation we're in. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that, that just highlights just how important it is to remember that people power can actually uh, or needs to actually inform the political process. Oh, that's right. That's <coughs> where we... The Victorian election obviously coming up and out of Eureka, this is where the ordinary man won the right to vote. Um, it's also where we won the right to organise collectively in trade unions at the moment. That's under under attack all the time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and now that women have uh, uh, joined the voting f- uh, group, <laughs> and yeah, that came that came shortly after. Yeah. And then on November the 29th, also an important event was uh, fifteen thousand diggers attended another monster meeting at Bakery Hill. So we see, yeah. This fight against racism that goes on, and it started back then on November the 29th when uh, Raffaella Caboni, one of the leaders of the Eureka Rebels, he made the statement, he said, I call on my fellow diggers, irrespective of nationality, religion or colour, to salute the Southern Cross as the refuge of all oppressed people on earth. Which, isn't that interesting that uh, uh, when they talk about uh, white Australian history, they generally overlook the fact that there was such a motley crew. Oh, that's right. And the point I wanted to make was we see at the moment the, the far-right groups, the Nazis and the fascists, use the Eureka flag yeah, as no, their own. Yeah, that's disgraceful. Quite clearly, the Eureka was a, yeah, a fight against racism. It was men from over 20 different nationalities, all different religions and races, all uniting and fighting the government. So that, that really chills my blood when I see that happening, the Eureka flag being used by far-right groups. That totally goes against the spirit of Eureka. I mean, those yeah, fascists yeah. obviously don't know their history. That's what I was going to say. Clearly they don't understand their history at all, if, they, if they're doing that. Yeah, no, they, they don't. And they, they've got absolutely no right to be using the Eureka mm. flag when, like I said, it was a struggle against racism. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, it's a small story. I used to read scripts and evaluate scripts and uh, film scripts. And one of the film scripts was a, a, a one put together by a, um, a person of Indian background. And they were young, you know, it was a love story sort of thing. But part of it was, uh, and the love story was between an Indian person and an, a local Australian. And... Uh, uh, he, the man, was supposed to have been sort of working class and uh, bogan, and um, he uh, and one of the things that worried the girl was the fact that he was associated with the Eureka flag because that was supposed to be uh, for this person who wrote the script a depiction of a white supremacist um, mm-hmm. uh, icon and ideology, and I, I thought, oh, that's so shocking. Absolutely shocking that it's translated into the mindscape of people who are, um, are um, of a non-English uh, descent, mm. uh, that uh, they should see that as being a, um, a negative image rather than the uh, powerful democratic image that it should be. This is why we need to 
remember this event and yeah, commemorate and keep it going. Um, the Eureka flag's a symbol of struggle and a symbol of unity, a, a symbol of yeah, fighting back against oppressive laws and against bad laws. Just to, I'll tell you something else on another uh, issue. Uh, the recent film by Michael Moore, Fahrenheit 2011, 9-11, uh, 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 11-9 it's called, you know the term redneck, which I'll never use again. Redneck is actually from a, uh, a, a Virginian miners on strike wore red bandanas to identify themselves as unionists. And it's been translated into the general parlance as being a negative thing uh, Mm. and and people call uh, people who who hold limited views rednecks. It's completely misinterpreted, the origins then of that. Isn't that fascinating? It's interesting how that happens. Yeah, like, yeah, it's a... Well, it's it's exactly the same. History being there, written by the... By the the uh, the, the boss class yeah. deciding the fate of, and then everybody else taking it on as being a, a, as a as a belief. If we get back to the uh, spirit of Eureka Memorial Dinner, which is going to be on Thursday, the twenty ninth of November, and it's uh, you put it in your calendar, calendar the twenty ninth of uh, November, Thursday, six pm, and it's going to be at the MUA Auditorium uh, in Island Street, West Melbourne. Um, you've got speakers. Tell us all about what's going to happen on that night. Yeah, it's on the Thursday, the 29th of November. So the 29th of November marks 164 years since the Eureka rebels took the oath on Baker Hill. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties, which was led by Peter Lawler, an Irishman. He was the leader of the movement, but the... uh, this year's annual Spirit of Eureka anniversary event, like you said, Annie, at the uh, Maritime Union of Australia, Island Street, West Melbourne, and it's commencing at 6pm. So this year's theme is Democratic and Workers' Rights Under Attack. The fight continues, uh, and the speakers will commence at 7pm with Corinne Grant, who's a lawyer, well-known comedian, will MC the event. The other speakers will be Lydia Thorpe, the Greens member for Northcote in the very first Indigenous uh, member in the Victorian Parliament. And we should remember the, the role played by the Indigenous people at Eureka on the morning of uh, December the 3rd after the massacre took place when the 26 miners were killed. The Indigenous women, the Wutherong people, went to the stockade and they uh, cared for the children while the parents recovered on that morning. Wow. So that's a, another important another thing. Yeah. Mm. Uh, another speaker will be uh, civil rights lawyer Greg Barnes. And the other speaker will be Dave Noonan, the National Secretary of the Construction Division from the CFMEU. And he'll be there to speak, but also to uh, accept the annual Spirit of Eureka Award this year going to the CFMEU Construction Division for their ongoing role in defending workers' rights and flying the Eureka flag, which was there recently, the federal government... <laughs> tried to ban the Eureka flag oh. being flown on work sites. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good choice. Got to keep fighting. Yeah, you got to keep fighting. Uh, it, it's uh, quite reminiscent of uh, down in Tasmania, the um, CFMEU man that uh, is uh, in court at the moment because uh, they want to um, take away his uh, right of entry. And the charge? Swearing. Swearing. Yeah, <laughs> they'll, 
They'll try anything. On a work site. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, they'll, well, no, they'll try anything. We've seen the CFME attack time and again. The leader, John Setka, year in, year out, they uh, get him on trumped-up charges and they've been trying to get him for a long time and they haven't been able to get him yet. Why? Because he's an effective, effective leader of the working class and has been. So that's, yeah. Well, the fight's on, that's the length, for sure. The lengths the government and the ruling class goes to to attack unionists and workers... That's why we say the fight continues from what, what happened 164 years mm. ago and we're still fighting to defend our rights. And it's still so relevant. It is, and the, yeah, the yep. fight's going to go on. How, how do people uh, get tickets? I know uh, that they can go to the uh, website spiritofeureka.org to be able to find out more information about this evening. Yeah, they can, or they can uh, go to the email address. Uh, it's soe dinner at protonmail.com or they can ring 0417456001 to make a reservation for this year's annual Spirit of Eureka dinner on Thursday, November the 29th at the Maritime Union of Australia, give Island us, Street, West Melbourne. Give us the number again. The number uh, 0417456001. Now you have to do that slowly. Okay. Three three numbers at the uh, each three numbers. So the number to book a table at the Spirit of Eureka dinner zero four one seven four five six zero zero one. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Annie. Thanks. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse the diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. The crown tried to divide them Giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it They said it's all of us or none They built a stockade While the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Army thought it was over and things would go their way 
But when 15,000 miners rallied a month later on the day, the Crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd want an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard 10,000 miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun Recyan will be broadcasting live from the steps of the Victorian Parliament House in support of Defend and Extend Public Housing's 10-day vigil. Public housing, everybody's business. Join the Anarchist World this week at Parliament House, 10am to 11am, on two Wednesdays, the 14th and 21st of November. And yes, there is more. Also join Talk Back With Attitude Parliament House, 10 to 11am, Thursday the 15th and the 22nd of November. Make public housing a significant issue for the forthcoming state election. Join us for these live broadcasts on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. For 10 days in November, Defend and Extend's public housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately $6 billion plus per year for public housing. House 1 million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments and most importantly of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. Weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when I'm thinking of getting out of the country for a few days, and I'm sure you'd love to join me as we brace for a welter of jingoistic warmongering, the glorious dead, who I'm sure would much rather be the not-so-glorious alive, the centenary of the armistice to end the war to end all wars, the slaughter and murder that honed the great values that make true Blue Aussie the country we are today.
And celebrating a military disaster on the wrong beach may well reflect Truvluwazi today. Nauseating so-called celebrations, commemorations, and let's not demean, understate the role of the cannon fodder sent to slaughter and be slaughtered on behalf of the world's financial elite, but I rather feel they would prefer us not to use their role as an excuse to eulogise war, whip up confected patriotism under the guise of pointing out the horrors of that which we eulogise. If we do want to end all wars, we could start by not spending trillions on the merchandise of the merchants of death and recruiting young people, young cannon fodder, who love killing people. The brave young men and women in uniform love their families and dear little children, life of a party, fun to be with, trained killers. Many of whom, not all, but many, discover too late that killing and being killed isn't the fun, fun, fun they thought it was. And to facilitate this glorification of train killing, the government has allotted $500 million to expand the train killer memorial in Canberra. While at the National Archives, for instance, unique audiovisual items are being lost because they lack funding for preservation and the National Gallery is at risk of insolvency as its acquisitions budget is used to, uh, for daily operations. Still, we put to train killer memorial supremo Brendan Neal to killing son, uh, this 500 mil will allow us to acknowledge the invasion of Trublawasi itself, the wars on our soil against the indigenous people, the slaughter, the attempted genocide, the war crimes, the destruction of their way of life. When Brendan recovered with the help of the old smelling salts, he spotted it was sacrilegious to the memory of the brave young men and women in uniform whose deeds we must commemorate to suggest the eradication of the indigenous people, the occupation of their lands, was war. And he must be right, of course, there's no historical revision in our commemorations like we now know the Vietnam anti-war movement was wrong after all. The heroic cannon fodder we sent to destroy the Vietnamese in their country on behalf of our great ally and very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, were heroes who saved the country from from, well, from something like our invasions all over the world for a couple of hundred years have saved us from something or, or other. As we have suddenly discovered that China, evil, evil, hang on, they're a major trading partner, partner a good, good, evil China is playing a role in the Pacific, which it has no right to play. That's our role, as directed by our very, very close friend, the US of, which is having its own troubles with uh, true blue Aussie stringing along, preventing China from aggressively sailing in the waters off China, the South China Sea, the misnomed South China Sea, which rightfully should be known as the East California Sea. And Firstly, suddenly discovered we have for too long ignored our very, very, very close friends in the Pacific, whom we now intend to help out with a few military bases, as directed by our very, very close friend, the US of. And just yesterday, the Assistant Minister for Keeping China Out of the Pacific, Anne Ruston to the US of, assured us our newfound benevolence is not about any particular country having more power or control, it's about working together. An investment needs to be transparent, and we can't disagree, because True Blue Aussie has no interest in power or control, unlike good, good, evil China. And there's no doubt our newfound benevolence is transparent. 
on our very, very, very close friend, who unlike good, good, evil China has no interest whatever in power or control, but only in peace and tranquility, the sort of peace and tranquility this weekend's nausea is all about, as parliamentary democracy allowed the people to express their opinion in the US of, the Republican Party, sort of their version of the conservative caring business class party and socialist party here in the true blue Aussie, lost control of the House, blowing a massive 35 seats, a rout to the Democrats, sort of their version of the conservative caring business class and socialist parties here in Troublewazi, the subject of the rout, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, announced, this is a huge success, a rout. We know the man is illusional, but this is ridiculous. Owen Donald said he looked forward to beautiful bipartisanship. A beauty whose value he has so observed, so respected, so dedicated himself to social adhesion, to avoiding division, and his comments indicated he is prepared to practice beautiful bipartisanship as long as the other lot do exactly what he says, exactly what he wants, support everything he does, do not investigate any of his beautiful bipartisan uniting the nation actions and tweets which would prove they are they, the other mob, are partisan and not beautiful. Ugly, ugly partisans. The most ugly, ugly partisans ever, ever. Bad, bad, baddest ever. And as another of his appointments heads out the door, mainly because he did nothing about this investigation into Donald, although might I say, why is this investigation taking about 200 years, give or take? Why couldn't Donald just repeat his investigation into his recent Supreme Court appointment and give it about an hour and a half? But anyway, heads out the door, Donald discovered one particular journalist, Jim Acosta, one of the huge contingent of fake news, biggest enemies of the US of, was a rude, terrible person who had the audacity to accost a poor Donald by asking him a question. He got his just desserts when Donald chopped up his credentials, and Donald, who just so respects women, with whom he can do whatever he likes, was shocked this rude, terrible person had touched a young female intern, that is, an unpaid worker, Donald ordered to wrestle the microphone off this enemy of the people. But apologies to Donald. The attorney general who walked out the door was not sacked. He resigned. After Donald tweeted, he had resigned. Bit of a surprise to the Attorney General, who opened his resignation letter with, as requested by you, and Donald thanked him and wished him well. I'm sick of saying it, but Donald remains a major, major threat to satire. All that he actually said and did. Connection here. Back here, as former Socialist Party Big Supremo and failed would-be Big Supremo Mark Liam Lowe becomes leader, brackets temporary, of that appalling Hoonsun's one notion not in his home state. I say temporary because who has ever been more than temporary in the political love game with that appalling Hoonsun? And there's the connection. They compete for who can get rid of their latest appointment and political love child the faster, Donald or her. Anyway, Mark told us... I'm not perfect. And goodness me, we've never noticed that. But the announcement prompted Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist with the bolt through his head to inform us the divorce between Liam Lowe and the Socialist Party was 100% the fault of the Socialist Party, which had veered so sharply to the left. And we thank him for informing us of that, because that too has escaped us completely.
While on facts and information, which have escaped us completely, we must thank the NAB the Prophet's Bank Supremo, Andrew Thor, Burn Your Wealth, for a deeply thought-through analysis of how come the bank's practices have been so exposed by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission, which Andrew told us a year ago was absolutely unnecessary, a socialist plot, the politics of envy, class warfare. Well, now, Andrew concedes the banks may have just possibly, may have put profits before people. Thank you, Andrew, for throwing up a possibility we'd never have thought of, a bolt from the blue. He said he had opposed the, the Her Most Gracious Majesty's commission because he didn't realise all these things were going on, and how would he? He's only paid several million a year to run the place. Having said that, Andrew joined the other paid several million new-nothing big bank supremos and a long list of financial experts and journalists who are also experts and MPs who are also experts who argue the commission should not react to a little bit of profits before people by bringing down stringent recommendations which could hurt us all because all of us is all they care about. We balk at suggestions... Again, how can satire compete? We balk at suggestions that current practices are in breach of our legal obligation or in conflict with the best interests of customers. We warn the Royal Commission to tread carefully, six split infinitive, carefully with its final recommendations around lending or risk a massive transfer of responsibility from borrowers to lenders. Perish the thought borrowers having some rights. Their only responsibility is to keep giving the banks their hard-earned. Why do we get the feeling they want us to believe the Hermos Gracious Majesty's commission never happened? Finally, speaking of this is ridiculous things like Donald celebrating a huge success, perhaps he thinks the biggest loss ever, ever is a huge success. In that US of election, Nevada elected a brothel owner who has been dead for more than a month. We've all heard of the dead voting, but getting elected? This is ridiculous. Oh, and if we can't leave the country this weekend, let's just get back under the blankets and don't come up for air. Good morning. That is incredible. That is incredible that someone should have been elected when they were dead. I'll have to have to say, but it just goes to show how the power elites are so embedded that uh, even the people who uh, who vote for them haven't even woken up to the fact that uh, they don't really care. It could be anything. It could be a, a cat, a dog, or a statue, and it wouldn't make any difference to them for some reason or other. The obvious powers that be are really hidden and, and quiet behind the scenes quite clearly. But we're moving on to something much more interesting than the American election. We're, we're going to speak to Cara Stewart. G'day, Cara. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thanks, Annie. Yeah, and you're from the Women's Client Justice Climate Justice Collective. Can you, first, firstly, before we go on to talking about the event that you're, in, you're part of, can you explain to people... Uh, what's going on with the Women's Climate Justice Collective? Yeah, so we formed last year um, at the Climate Justice Convergence in Canberra. Um, and since then, we've run a few camps over in WA, Skillsharing for Women. Uh, and we've also started holding monthly meetings in Victoria. Uh, we held a panel on women's climate justice back in June and had a huge turnout. Um, and there was a lot of interest 
in uh, running some training for women around public speaking, and that's what's brought us to start thinking about organising this, this upcoming event. So when you say you went, you joined, joined together and made, made a group in Canberra, was, was there a crying out need for this, or is, was this more to do with uh, uh, focusing the uh, strong uh, st- uh, political voices that were coming out of the group, the female uh, side of our society? I would say both. <laughs> yeah, right. So basically, um, we had an open space at the Climate Justice Convergence for different ideas to come up. And one of the ideas was suggested was bringing together women in the climate movement. Um, and um, the main mission for the group was to mainstream feminist climate justice, which is showing the sort of intersections between gender and climate and how women are disproportionately affected by the impacts of climate change and also how women should be supported in the climate movement and empowered to, to take action. So our main sort of mission is to mainstream feminist climate justice support women in the climate movement and demand that women's rights in all our diversities are incorporated into climate campaigns and policies. So that's what we're pushing for at the moment. Um, But yeah, it it is really about bringing together the two, you know, really strong movements at the moment, which are feminism and and the climate movement. We feel like bringing them together will really create an unstoppable force, which will hopefully turn this ship around. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right, because uh, it can only be a force for good. Uh, I was just talking to my co-host, Fiona, that uh, I've been to a variety of events where uh, really informed and uh, knowledgeable women have been speaking around uh, workers' issues, for example. Sometimes mm. they uh, are, uh, and if they're older people, uh, they have got, they're very well informed and very interesting people. But from the point of view of a person who's trying to record their talks, it's often uh, my experience that uh, they are less likely to project themselves with full confidence than, say, their male partners. Is that something that uh, colleagues, their male colleagues, is that something that you've uh, witnessed? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I think there's, you know, women often don't have the confidence to speak up, um, you know, and that's you know, created by the society that we have at the moment. But, you know, I think women do want to speak up and often do a lot of the work behind the scenes in a lot of movements. But then when a microphone is offered up to speak to the media or speak to the crowd or speak to the radio, uh, often it will be the men that take up the microphone. Um, There's often a sort of presumed sense of authority. Um, But, yeah, we really want to encourage women to step up and, and to take the mic and to increase that sort of equality and diversity of voice in the climate movement and, you know, across social movements more broadly. It's interesting because uh, it's not just uh, that uh, you, you put it in a nutshell there because it, it's not just, the, it's not saying to men that they uh, feel entitled to the role. There is actually uh, women also sort of holding back a bit. Yeah, exactly, uh, which is an important issue, uh, which actually gets us to this really important thing that you're doing tomorrow at the Kathleen, Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre, which is in Carlton. It's uh, 251 Faraday Street, just near uh, Melbourne Uni. It's the library there. You're, you've, uh, you're working with Counteract uh, to put together a self 
confidence and empowerment as well as practical skills sessions, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. So it's running from 10 to 4.30pm tomorrow, Sunday, the 11th of November. Um, It's called Women to the Front, um, Skills for Climate Justice. Um, The idea, the objectives of it is to build confidence in women uh, to participate in public roles um, and the specific skills that we'll be sharing is around public speaking and holding space, so sort of being able to hold attention, especially in, in tough conditions like at an action or where it's busy and just feeling really confident in holding space with not only your body but projecting your voice as well. Um, and also around storytelling and framing so that when you are speaking you can really... Um, have a good uh, framing for your story and also speaking with media and uh, lastly using your smartphone as well, so for filming and social media, so getting women out there and the broader message across social media as well. Um, does the collective have, um, does it run campaigns and do those campaigns have particular objectives and um, do you organise actions together? At the moment, we're more focused around uh, supporting women in the climate movement, so supporting current um, actions and campaigns that are already happening. So it's mainly around training and upskilling women in the climate movement and providing solidarity for campaigns that are already running. Um, For example, we partner with ActionAid, who are, they're currently running a campaign around women's climate justice, um, and that's supporting women in actually in, in Africa who are struggling from Australian mines over there. So we sort of, we work with other organisations as well. We don't particularly run our own campaigns at the moment, although that's something that we, we may look at in the future, but mainly focusing on, on training and upskilling women. Um, and we will be running a women's climate justice camp next year as well. We just received a grant for that. So that's going to be our next big one. Um, and also awareness raising, so spreading the message of what feminist climate justice is um, and how, you know, the links between gender and, and climate. So we'll be running that through events like a, a, a feminist climate justice poetry night that we're going to be running early next year as well. Oh, that's really fascinating. So you, it's bringing culture into the centre stage. And I guess uh, these agenda items, these uh, events that you're running must be uh, being put forward by your collective, like people are coming up with these ideas. Yeah, that's right. So we meet monthly at the Kathleen Syme Library on the third Wednesday of every month um, at 6pm. So we've had, yeah, the, the group's been growing and we sort of brainstorm and come up with these ideas and we do also have a national group that um, speaks monthly over the phone and, yeah, together we sort of come up with these ideas that they really just... There's a lot of work already being done by women in the climate movement. We want to make it more inclusive and welcoming for new women and also upskilling women that are already in the movement and attracting more women to it. So I think that will really strengthen both the climate movement and, and the feminist movement as well. So, so creating a support network. Yeah, creating a support network and, and opportunities for upskilling and, and networking. And, and now that we talk about the actual... Um, workshop, which mm. workshops that are involved uh, and the skills that you're going to go through. Um, do you, have In your own personal experience, have you, you know, had to uh, deal with uh, learning how to stand there in front of a large crowd? Or have you uh, dealt with media? Have you done those sorts of things? What's, what's it been like for you? 
Uh, yeah, look, I have. I haven't um, dealt with a lot of media. This is sort of probably one of my first opportunities. Oh, well, um, I'm at- glad to do that for you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, but I, I am absolutely looking forward to the training myself. I will be participating, so I won't be facilitating. I did help to organise the logistics. Um, but, yeah, it will be run by facilitators from Counteract. So, yeah, we're, I'm really looking forward to participating and learning some new skills. I have, you know, done a bit of public speaking because my background is a, a secondary school teacher, so sort of come through the job. Um, so I have learned to project my voice and speak, you know, with confidence to crowds. But, you know, when it comes to media and also speaking up in stressful situations like in action where you may have some, you know, police involved and things like that. So it would be good to have those extra skills. And I'm looking forward to learning, you know, just voice projection and holding space and, yeah, those sort of media spokesperson skills. So, yeah, it will be a great opportunity for myself as well. I mean, basically your journey is the journey of most people who uh, want to uh, make a difference and are looking around to find ways to be more effective. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I, I, I only joined the climate movement probably about three years ago and then uh, yeah, as I said, the Women's Climate Justice Collective only formed last year, so relatively new to it all. But yeah, I've always sort of felt a passion to make things want to make things better, and have always sort of been aligned to the, you know valuing the, the environment and valuing feminism, and then it's sort of just sort of naturally come together to, to this group. I'm curious about the the intersection between feminism and and the climate; those two movements. Um, could you just other specific examples that kind of highlight the how women may be more disadvantaged by climate change um, than men? Yeah, so there's a a few, you know, sort of tangible examples. Um, For example, when there are natural disasters, there is a spike in domestic violence. Um, That's shown Mm -hmm. globally and within Australia after the King Lake bushfires, there's a huge spike in domestic violence. So Mm -hmm. that immediately impacts women, of course, and children. Women are often in caring roles, so again, with increasing temperatures and and natural disasters, women will be, you know, needing to be looking after children and elderly and the sick a lot more frequently, and the demands, you know, mm. will, will fall on women a lot there. And then, of course, you know, globally, women actually make up the majority of farmers, um, you know, planning their own crops for their families and on selling some at markets, and, and they'll be impacted by, you know, Water security, food security, um, you know, with more droughts. Um, and then, of course, again, with natural disasters, when there's floods and bushfires, um, women can't get access to, you know, reproductive health care. You know, if you're a pregnant woman and there's a flood, what are you going to do mm. to get to your obstetrician or to the hospital? You know, you're immediately more vulnerable. Um, yeah, so that it really is just this idea of climate justice that those who are least responsible often suffer you know, the worst consequences and women being one of the biggest groups that are most vulnerable. So, yeah, that's just a few examples. I'll just remind our listeners that they're on 3CR's Solidarity Breakfast and we're having a yarn with Cara Stewart. She's from the Women's Climate Justice Collective. And uh, I was going to ask you, can you give us, I know you're not from Counteract, but uh, this is uh, this event that you've got on at the Kathleen, Kathleen Syme Library uh, in uh, Faraday Street on, in Carlton tomorrow at 10am to 4.30pm. Counteract are experts, aren't they, in uh, people uh, 
pe- uh, people who wish to actually vocalise their dissent, uh, but to do it in a way that's creative and safe. Yeah, that's right. Um, so Canaract is sort of led by Nicola Paris, who's you know a really experienced um, activist, and she and, and Canaract more broadly, their main sort of mission is supporting communities with with training. So they really do want to train around sort of um, civil disobedience and non-violent action, and um, yeah, making it really effective and creative and safe for people, you know, who do want to step it up. And, you know, it is sort of getting to that time where a lot of people are saying, you know, we need to do more. Um, we're not being heard. So she really wants to support communities and groups. Well, Panarak wants to support communities and groups that do, you know, want to step up and do that in a really safe and effective way. So before we let you go, can you run through again the types of things that uh, people can expect and how they can get tickets? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, again... The, the main skills that we'll be um, working on tomorrow are... So it's designed for women and, of course, it's um, uh, open to anyone who identifies as a woman um, and and non-binary folks as well. Um, so the main skills that we'll be offering are public speaking, holding space confidently, being able to do media, as in being a spokesperson, being able to shoot and deploy video using you know, easy smartphone technology and how to demonstrate confidence as well. So those are the main skills we'll be covering. Um, And if people are interested in getting tickets, they can visit um, our Facebook page and you'll find the event there. So it's facebook.com slash Women's Climate Justice Collective and just head down to the event section and you'll see the event there and add a link through to to buy tickets through Eventbrite. Um, And we did also want to give away a free ticket to one of your listeners. So... Perhaps the first person to text or call in, I can, I can provide a free ticket for them as well, well for a woman who may be interested. Yeah, that's great. So uh, give us a call on nine four one nine eight three seven seven if you're interested in going to this event tomorrow, uh, ten a.m. to four thirty p.m. at the Kathleen Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre. That's at two fifty one Faraday Street in Carlton. Building confidence in women. To get out front, it's called nine four one nine eight three seven seven. If you were to buy a ticket, it's thirty dollars to seventy dollars. So if you want a free ticket and you're a woman or identify as a woman, then give us a call nine four one nine eight three seven seven. Thanks very much, Cara, for speaking to us. We uh, have enjoyed and uh, uh, nothing but success. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This year's TILDA, Melbourne Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, is packed with stories that represent the rich tapestry of trans and gender diverse people's lives. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer, along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com. A 3CR supporter. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? 
Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Well, that was a very interesting discussion, I'll have to say. Uh, the uh, 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 Last week we were talking to Don Sutherland about how the silo effect of uh, workers' issues versus the environment is a false uh, separation in actual fact. The issues that workers face and the environment are inseparable. And and this is proving that, say, mm. feminists, feminism and the environment are equally connected. Yeah, that was fascinating to see the interrelations between the two. Um, and it, it's obvious that women uh, carry the burden a lot of a lot of the effects of climate change, um, as Cara explained. Um, so it, that's something we all need to remember, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to say. Um, we uh, had a pretty interesting program today. We, we, we went over silicosis. We were looking at the uh, incredible uh, effects on young tradies and uh, others who are around silica dust. And, uh, and I must say that uh, it's become quite normal for people to uh, expect to have uh, Caesar stone on their surfaces in uh, new kitchens and and all the rest of it. And I'm sure mm. that a lot of people wouldn't even consider that it was uh, how health-damaging um, dust is and how health-damaging silica dust is in particular. I mean, the, as I, w- I was uh, talking to people who work in industries like this, that no dust is safe. No. So people walking past places... Um, or in a in a smoky uh, uh, a dusty environment, humans aren't made for it. Mm. But it was uh, interesting to hear just how gobsmackingly unhealthy uh, and how important it is for uh, workers to take action for their own safety. But clearly, all... clearly, especially given the regulators aren't doing their their side of it. No, and it's is... always so slow. the The difference between lived experience and uh, uh, a systemic change, yeah, mm. and it, I mean it has to it has to change, but you can't you can't have them just going. Um, it needs to uh, you know for them to shake their heads and uh, make up their mind that they're going to do something or not do something. There's no time. There's no time. Exactly, no time, and uh, that's what we were looking at earlier in the program. We moved on to remind people about the spirit of Eureka. Uh, hundred and sixty-four year celebration dinner, which is going to be on at uh, the twenty-ninth of November, which is actually the date of the mass meetings and uh, and uh, Eureka. Um, it's going to be at the uh, Maritime Union of Australia's auditorium in Island Street, forty-six to fifty-four Island Street, West Melbourne, uh, and. Uh, some really good speakers. It really good speakers. Like a great event. Yes, yeah. uh, and I, as I was saying to uh, Marcus, that every year it appears that the spirit of Eureka needs to be uh, re-invoked because things are really hotting up and not in a good way <laughs> at the moment. I'll have to say uh, the. Um, 
we followed that with uh, This Is The Week That Was. And then, of course, we spoke to Cara Stewart, uh, Women's Climate Justice Collective, and uh, the event that's going to be on at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre tomorrow, Faraday Street, Building Confidence in Women to Get Out Front. Um, and we're a little bit early. What What are your plans? <laughs> are you going off to the Stand Together Against Racism I'm rally, 2pm? Def- definitely um, thinking about it. Yeah, it sounds like a really uh, a timely event, given the events of yesterday uh, at the city. Um, this is increasing. This kind of media, racism in the media, is becoming more prevalent um, and it has really terrible ramifications for people for, of those communities. Um, and we need to stand together against it. So this is an important rally. It's happening today at the State Library. Uh, stand together against racism. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, uh, There was a report on um, uh, Four Corners uh, and it mm. was investigating something that we already knew, which was the beat-up around African gangs, in inverted commas, that uh, the Liberal Party had been pushing and uh, it was quite. Um, they. It was interesting that they actually went out of their way to do a report on it because it's quite clear that it's becoming uh, an issue of uh, importance for people to realise that um, this. There, there aren't actually uh, any uh, evidences that uh, were uh, actually gave any foundations to their uh, beat up campaign. Um, which, uh, but of course, beat up campaigns then, of course, cause things to happen, and uh, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I re- received uh, quite an interesting uh, email from the uh, so, uh, the legal social justice legal centre around this particular issue, and uh, it's apparently across Victoria, uh, our centres. That's the. Uh, uh, um, Community legal centres have reported an over 50% increase in racial attacks on African Australians and other communities of colour since the beat-up. And uh, and in Australia's inner north, two Caucasian men seized a young African-Australian mother's pram and rattled it with her baby inside yelling racist abuse. In Melbourne's west, an African-Australian teenager was stabbed by a Caucasian man who told him to go back to where you come from. He is still hospitalised. In Dandenong, a Burmese-Australian man was violently assaulted by a Caucasian man with a pickaxe. He was hospitalised and still bears serious injuries from the attacks. And one assumes these are the uh, tip of the iceberg. Now, African-Australian men are being stopped for arbitrary searches 2.5 times more often by police than Caucasian men. In just one of many recent cases, a young South Sudanese-Australian man was forced by police to leave a party, then immediately arrested for being drunk in public. Oh, it's all too much. Tip of the iceberg stuff. Anyway, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast today. If you want to get up to Stand Together Against Racism, rally 2pm, in front of the State Library, it's probably a good place to be, especially with the events that happened yesterday in Burke Street. We're going to go out with uh, Mia Dyson, Sweet Struggle. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. <laughs>
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.